if a Canadian looks at an indigenous person and can admit that you know that person has deep roots in this place they're from here this is their place which we hear you know more and more with the land acknowledgements we hear these days this is something that comes up so if a Canadian can acknowledge that then that immediately calls their identity into question because how can a Canadian be a foreigner in Canada right it doesn't make sense so my view is that Canadian culture is is basically founded on avoiding facing this contradiction avoiding dealing with it and so one of the ways of course to to deal with that contradiction is to not have to have to deal with indigenous people in a like in a in a meaningful way to be able to dismiss them constantly and so this is one of the reasons i think that residential school was so important in the development of canada because it allowed people to be removed from the landscape so that canadians wouldn't have to see them or interact with them. They were basically imprisoned in schools, on reserves, and Canada could grow in the way it wanted to. And so as soon as you have that person in front of you, it brings up this contradiction and people haven't been wanting to face that. That's Dr. Dwayne Donald, standing by a parking lot in White Mud Park on a crisp early winter day there's kids sledding down a steep hill by the Grandview stairs right behind us. And there's joggers and lycra running by, some people on cross-country skis, dogs. And in the background, in the distant background, I'm pretty sure I hear a woodpecker. Now, I can't swear by it, I'm no ornithologist, but I think it's a pileated woodpecker. And those are the largest species of woodpecker in North America. And that's really interesting because the Cree word for woodpecker, well, that's going to play a big role in today's episode. Woodpecker in Cree is papas chase, which is exactly what we came here to talk to Duane about. Now, a while back, assistant producer Gabrielle Lamontagne, she pitched me an idea for an episode of History X. That's the show you're listening to. And she wanted to cover the surrender of the Pappas Chase Reserve in South Edmonton. And that really struck me as kind of interesting because a friend of mine who lives on the south side, right smack dab in the middle of what would have been the Pappas Chase Reserve, told me the story. He was stunned to learn that his house sat right in the middle of this former reserve. He wanted to bring it up with his community league, but it wasn't really going anywhere. But the story was that the land there was transferred under dubious circumstances in the late 1880s. So I asked Gabrielle to tell me more. And she told me that the story had a pretty classic villain. This villain, well, his name graces neighborhoods, parks, schools, and Edmonton. Yeah, Frank Oliver. And now we'll get to that villain in a little bit, but for now... I want to tell you why we're in this park with Dwayne Donald. So just south of here would have been the northwestern boundary for IR-136. That's Indian Reserve 136, a land set aside for the Pappas Chase Band. Dwayne is descended from the Pappas Chase Band, and he grew up right here in Edmonton. He told Gabrielle and I that the story of the reserve is just a tiny tip of the iceberg that the story of the Pappas Chase 
and the story of Edmonton starts way earlier than the settlements outside the walls of the old fort. So today on History X, the surrender of IR-136. We look into how and why a big chunk of South Edmonton, guaranteed by treaty to the Papas Chase Band, ended up the way it did. And if you've never been there, well, let's just say it's not the most remarkable urban landscape you'll ever see. Strip malls, condos, sprawling single-family homes, a lot of that 50s and 60s car-centered development when the car was the way of the future and everybody wanted their home and white picket fence. There's a lot of that. But the story we're going to tell is a lot more interesting than post-war suburbia. And hey, along the way, we're going to question some foundational narratives about this particular city, Edmonton and the settlement of Western Canada more generally. So this story is a big one. We're bringing it to you in two parts. It's all on the mighty, mighty CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Nah, scratch that. 88.5 FM in Amiskwachiwaskaigan. And if I mess that up, it's Beaver Hill's house. So let's get back to Dwayne. Do you want me to introduce myself in Cree, or how do you want? How do you want me to? That'd be good. Yeah, yeah. Niwa Mogantik, Kakio Kitatum Skatanawal, Mr. Hai Muskwal Nitsi Gasun. So that's uh, just a greeting, and uh, I said my my Cree name is Big Bear, Mr. Hai Muskwal. And uh, in Cree culture, bears are connected with healing, so I understand myself as. That's sort of, uh, I guess, one of the things I'm supposed to do is be involved in healing somehow. Yeah. Mm. So can you locate us in this place that we are? You said, I said, where should we meet? You said, I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> I just kind of picked this. Uh-huh. Is it, did I, could you tell us more about this location? Sure. Well, um, we're next to the, the North Saskatchewan River, uh, which is a major, you know, feature of this landscape and, and uh, next to a place that's, you know, been a gathering place for thousands of years. And we're right beside this, this beautiful creek. In Cree, uh, we would know it as uh, Wapasiski Sea Pieces. So uh, that's White Mud Creek. And uh, it's one of the you know, the main tributaries of this river in this area, and it drains to the south. So the Gaskateo CP joins this creek uh, around 23rd Ave, so a little south of here, okay. and that flows this way. So yeah, we're right, right here pretty much at the confluence of that creek and that river. And what lands traditionally are these these are the traditional lands of what people? Yeah, I think it's important that people know that uh, this this place where we are, the place we call Edmonton now, Amasquichi, traditionally has been a pretty cosmopolitan kind of gathering place. So it's attracted a lot of different people, and. Uh, a gathering place in that sense as a, as a trading area, a ceremonial area. And so 
in that sense, it, it has had traditionally had kind of uh, connotations of neutrality for, you know, for different nations who would come here. And so uh, the Blackfoot know this area. They've, you know, they've known it for a long time. Dene, Nakota Sioux, Anishinaabe or, or Soto people. And, uh, and then more recently Métis, but yeah, most of the people that have lived in this area continue to live in this area, the Cree. And uh, this place would attract, you know, what we call Sagao Cree, which are like Bush Cree from the north, and then Pascual Cree from the, from the south. They would all kind of gather in this area here. But yeah, so this is a generally a Cree territory, understood as Cree. Okay. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but was this where the Papa's Chase Reserve was? I know we're fast forwarding through history very quickly here, <laughs> but um, you know what we really want to talk about. I think what we, we when we were discussing is this this case of the the surrender, quote unquote, of the Papa's Chase Reserve. So, would this be in that territory? Well, certainly this this would be within the range of of the band we call Papashis, but uh, the reserve itself, the reserve proper when it was surveyed would would have been uh, south of here. Okay. So this would have been the western boundary pretty much. But if you go probably a couple of miles south of here, you would come to the, what would have been the, I guess the northwest corner of the Papashis reserve when it was surveyed. So. Uh, yeah, we're not quite on the reserve yet, but definitely, you know, in this range. But one thing that I guess I wanted to share is that I think it's a, it's a misunderstanding that many people have about, um, I guess, the, the way um, political units were created uh, in those days and traditional times. And we have this idea that, that somehow they're parallel to how we've been trained to think about nation and nationality and, and politics. But my understanding, it wasn't like that really at all. So it's a, it's a mistake to think, to assume that the Papashes band has always existed here. That's, that's not true. My understanding is that those political units formed based on leadership, which was mostly chiefs. So they were quite fluid and whenever you know, an individual emerged that people admired, that they wanted to follow, then that band would form. And typically, the names for bands were, came after the name of the leader. In so was, to was Papa's Chase, is that after a leader? Uh, well, he, he's had different names, but the one I know best is Papa Steo. So Papa Chase is the little woodpecker, a downy woodpecker, and Papa Steo is, uh, I can't remember what you call that in English, but it's the bigger one, kind of looks like a pterodactyl. Pileated woodpecker, that's the one I was talking to you about at the top. It's a huge bird, about as big as a crow, and they're beautiful. Back to Dwayne. So that, that was his name, that's the name I know, Papa Steo. Um, and so that band, the Papa Chase band, formed sometime in the 1850s but it really important for people to understand that these these political units were quite fluid and they were formed based on kinship mostly so you would have people all throughout this area that may have decided for different reasons to to follow Papa Steele to join him under his leadership and so that's my understanding is that in sometime in the 1850s this band we call Papa Chase formed 
and uh, lived in this area, and just like a lot of other bands that lived in this area. But what happens when, when treaty is negotiated is that that political unit becomes solidified and it loses its fluidity. And, and so, you know, all these bands in this area that we know, they're named after the chief at that time when treaty was negotiated, right? And so it's a mistake to think that they, they've always existed and, and you know, because it was never like that. But the reserve system and the way things changed, it, it caused that kind of static gotcha. formation to occur. So Pawpaw Chase is really, the best way to understand it is just like every other band here was, was uh, made up of members who had all kinds of kinship connections to other Cree people in this area. And of course, people who weren't Cree, right? Because those, those kinship lines crossed those, those tribal categories. So, do Papasteo, what dates roughly would that have been? For that band? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if anybody is. But sometime, yeah, I think in the early to mid-1850s is the sense that I have, is that uh, he emerged as a leader. Uh, and typically with that dynamic, that leadership came from, like, proving yourself as a hunter, as a warrior which I understand that's what he did. And, and so he gained that prominence and that respect. And so a band formed under his leadership. And so, you know, they would have lived like a lot of other bands in this area did at that time. But two things that I think changed things pretty dramatically around here politically. Uh, one is uh, the, the eradication of the buffalo. So the last buffalo would have seen been seen in this area around 1870 and uh, of course uh, you know in the years leading up the the herds would have dwindled and the people you know the suffering would have would have began the starvation would have began before then right Um, so that's one thing that you know really changed the the dynamic in this area Um, but the other thing is the waning of the fur trade right and so you know once you know, the animal populations in this area, in the Ford area, had been depleted to the point where really the trade couldn't really exist anymore, then there was a very, again, a very difficult transition to a, a different way of living. And so the Pawpaw Chase people, because they, because they lived in this area when all of that changed, they became associated with the Fort, right? And their relationship with the Fort, because there were quite a few members that made a living uh, with the workings of the fort in different ways. And some of my ancestors did that kind of stuff as well. So if you look at a lot of the literature, their kind of identities, I guess, as First Nations people are kind of uh, um, undermined or considered not authentic because they were associated with the fort. But that's how they had to make a living back then in order to try to survive and and uh, like I said, a lot of my ancestors were, were part of that. You know, just uh, doing different things, had different jobs inside the fort. Uh, would, would they go inside the fort for uh, for some of the day, and then would they live outside the fort? And what what was life like at that point? Yeah, I don't know if I can say too much about that, Russ. But um, yeah, in my research and the, the stories that I've heard is that... Uh, 
the fort was a pretty, the walls were pretty permeable back then. There were lots of different people who went in and out. And of course, there were a lot of indigenous people, mostly women, who worked inside the fort and didn't necessarily live there, right? And so this idea that somehow those fort walls were impermeable and, you know, it's, it's a myth. It's been taken up in different ways and I think misrepresented in a lot of books. But again, I think the idea that this was a cosmopolitan place and lots of people involved, the fort kind of took on that character as well, right? And it wasn't until things changed that that, that sort of separation be became more enhanced, I would say. That's really interesting because they're actually really close to Fort Edmonton Park and you'd see, you see the, uh, what is that the rebuild uh, of, the, of the fort have you visited the fort over there in Fort Edmonton Park? Uh, a few times I have, yeah. Yeah, don't go there too often. Behind me is Kenneth McDonald's house. Kenneth McDonald was one of the first pioneers to live outside of the fort. He built this house in 1886, and it was considered a mansion at the time. The historical accuracy of Fort Edmonton Park is so renowned that Hollywood has caught wind of such things. The film, The Assassination of Jesse James, was filmed on this very street. And in this very house, Brad Pitt sat in the kitchen and ate biscuits with Casey Affleck just before he was shot. In the movie The Gunfighters, Bruce Coburn was shot down right on this very street. Though Edmonton provides a very good backdrop for many Western movies, it assuredly wasn't very much of a Western city in that sense. In Canada, one had to have a permit to carry a gun. And in Edmonton, one had to have a permit to consume or carry alcohol. So even though it makes a fine backdrop for westerns and shows where great gunfights take place... Thank you to the YouTube channel Edmonton Stories for that clip from Fort Edmonton Park about the historical accuracy of the park and the lack thereof in its portrayal in Hollywood. We've been talking about the fort and how it transformed Edmonton, but we're not really interested in that so much as we are the Papa's Chase Band and the story of the surrender of Indian Reserve 136. That's a story you won't hear at the fort. I mean, I love the fort. I really do. I take my kids there. I love it. But History X is all about the stories you won't learn at places like that. It's all on the Mighty Mighty CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Now back to our talk with Dwayne Donald. Yeah, don't go there too often. I was there uh, uh, a long time ago when our son was young and uh, I was just really struck by this sort of um, anthropological divide that had been accentuated there because when we approached the gates of the fort, <coughs> there was, um, I'll call them Indians. There were some Indians acting like their ancestors outside the walls and they were they had a little camp set up and. I don't know, I, to me it was strange because uh, it seemed like an intimate kind of family, community setting, and we were like intruding on it, but it was like this museum kind of scenario where like the woman, the mother was um, sorting berries, I think, and just doing different things. But I remember there was a baby in a cradle board that was like propped up, you know, against something, and I just thought this is really odd, you know, that these actors playing their ancestors are out here like this. But then I went inside the walls of the fort and it was clear that was a very different kind of scene going on in there. 
much more industrious and uh, different people in there, right? And, and then while we were in there, uh, I heard some women say, the Indians are dancing outside. So I followed them out the other side of the fort. And yeah, there was teepee set up and there was uh, kind of a performance going on, right? So it was just this real <laughs> enhanced pronounced divide that uh, I think goes against what it was actually like, you know, during the fur trade days. Yeah. So why do you think that this image of this hard division between settlers inside the fort and indigenous people outside I mean this is pure speculation I guess but why would people go for that as as opposed to a more fluid notion that's reflected in the primary sources yeah yeah it's a really good question so I guess in answering that what comes to mind is uh, a long time ago in the mid-80s when I was an undergrad at the University of Alberta I took a class on the history of West Africa and uh, the professor at the time of course I didn't know anything about the history of West Africa it was very interesting but the professor at the time went out of his way to emphasize that when Europeans managed to sail around and arrive in West Africa they were quite surprised with what they found how advanced the societies were, how much wealth there was. And the reports that came back were emphasized how impressed they were. But what he said uh, always stuck with me where he said, uh, so initially when Europeans encountered sub-Saharan Africans in West Africa, <coughs> there wasn't any racist kind of, uh, you know, idea of them being inferior or anything like that. So the racist rhetoric, he said, came when they realized that they could sell these people as slaves. And, and so his point was, you can't sell people as chattel, basically, if you consider them human being like you. So this racist rhetoric of the inferior black race got ramped up and, of course, extends right into the present as a way to justify what's happened, right? So the reason I bring that up is that I think at the height of the fur trade when cooperation was necessary and there were mutual benefits and it was fairly balanced, the system, um, there was a lot of interaction and there was none of, none of the racist rhetoric that we're familiar with now, at least not the way I read it. So when did things change? Well, following that example, if, if you now turn your attention from the fur trade to the land and the resources, you cannot displace people from land and resources if you consider them to be your equal as a human being. So the racist rhetoric gets ramped up, the need for the nation and nationality to grow and, and prosper becomes uh, the central part of that story. And so Indians are in the way. And so the fort becomes this sort of site of this struggle. And so that's why it's so important as a mythic symbol because it teaches us about this, this divide that's necessary for the nation to grow as, you know, as the settlers want it to, right? So that's the way I understand that problem, right? And that, so that has continued to this day when you see reenactments or you see films or popular media where there's this, uh, clear divide between 
civilization, progress, industriousness of the white man and the sort of like land-based but not very advanced indigenous people. Like there's a, you know, there's like this sort of hierarchy that you see in, in popular media. That's really interesting. I didn't, I never thought about it that way. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and in my work too, I've, I've referred to this as a, a relational psychosis. So, and it's kind of an extension of that problem of the fort. So a psychosis is, is of course kind of an imbalance, right? That gets perpetuated in different ways. And so I guess a way I could explain it is that um, if a Canadian looks at an indigenous person and can admit that, you know, that person has deep roots in this place, they're from here, this is their place, which we hear, you know, more and more with the land acknowledgements we hear these days, this is something that comes up. So if a Canadian can acknowledge that, then that immediately calls their identity into question. Because how can a Canadian be a foreigner in Canada, right? It doesn't make sense. So my view is that Canadian culture is, is basically founded on avoiding facing this contradiction, avoiding dealing with it. And so one of the ways, of course, to, to deal with that contradiction is to not have to, have to deal with indigenous people in a, like in, a, in a meaningful way, to be able to dismiss them constantly. And so this is one of the reasons I think that residential school was so important in the development of Canada, because it allowed people to be removed from the landscape so that Canadians wouldn't have to see them or interact with them. They were basically imprisoned in schools, on reserves, and Canada could grow in the ways it wanted to. And so as soon as you have that person in front of you, it brings up this contradiction and people haven't been wanting to face that problem. Right? So that's what this psychosis is about, the way I see it. We talked about the fort and the cosmopolitan nature of what uh, Edmonton would have been and then uh, the fur trade. Now, how do we get to, I know we're fast forwarding in history here, but it's, it's, it's half an hour, we always get us a half an hour. <laughs> we want to do another sequel. Um, how do we get to IR-136? So I guess that's Indian Reserve 136. How, how do we get to that? Well, the way I understand it is that uh, the members of the Papa Chase Band weren't part of the original negotiations of Treaty 6. So Treaty 6 was negotiated in 1876, right along this same river, Fort Pitt and Fort Carleton. Initially, that's where the negotiations took place. But Papa Steo didn't attend, and I assume that most of the Papa Chase people didn't go. Do you, do you know why not? Uh, I can really only speculate. My, my suspicion is that uh, they were further south, hunting the remaining herds of buffalo. And there were... There were several, you know, prominent Cree leaders that did the same thing. And uh, so that's like I, I, I'm, I've heard of, of different other bands that say, you know, that the remaining herds were south and that's where they were at the time the treaty was negotiated, you know. And so that's one guess I have, but I, I'm not sure why they weren't there. Uh, but over the winter, they heard about it, right? So, you, you know, um, you can imagine people meeting in their teepees, you know, getting together sharing news and so getting all the details about what the queen offered 
what what happened at these negotiations and so I can only speculate that Papa Steo consulting with his members um, decided that that sounded the treaty sounded like a a good idea so the next summer the summer of 1877 he went to the gates of Fort Edmonton and he asked to become a you know to his band become part of Treaty 6 and so uh, it was agreed and they called that an ad adhesion to Treaty 6 and there were several bands who after 1876 um, also agreed to adhesions so it was a, a kind of a slow thing that went on but uh, that's the year the pawpaw shoots. After 1877, after the Papa's Chase Band adheres to Treaty 6, all does not go well. Next time on History X, on part two of the surrender of IR-136, you'll find out exactly why. And you'll meet our villain, Frank Oliver. You've been listening to History X, the show about what they didn't teach you at school, on the Mighty Mighty CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Ameskwachi Waskaigan, Beaver Hills House. I am your host, Russell Cobb, and it has been my great pleasure talking to Dr. Dwayne Donald of the University of Alberta. I would also like to give a special thanks this episode to Gabrielle Lamontagne for uh, initiating this interesting story. And to Sabrina Tharani, to Edmonton Stories, the YouTube channel, and to all of you for listening. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, HistoryXPod. You can find us on Facebook. Just search up HistoryXCGSR. And I'm on Twitter, for whatever that's worth, Russell S. Cobb. See you next time with part two of the story. Take care.